and hear from our time together in your word tonight. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okie dokie. If you have your Bibles and want to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, the book after Proverbs. Somebody asked a good follow-up question last week. I told you the week of Psalms that uh, Psalms is the big book and a, a single chapter is a psalm, as in a singular. And so they said, well, Proverbs, you mentioned you know, Proverbs is the big book, a compilation, but why is a chapter not a proverb? Because each chapter has multiple proverbs in it. You know, a proverb is a single kind of uh, succinct statement. So each chapter is still Proverbs 19, has maybe 10, 12. It's still a multiple in that. So that was a good clarification from last week. I I will tell you as we come to this book though, it's still part of the wisdom literature and man, I I have struggled. This is a very, very um, intense book of the Bible. I'm going to bring some pages around. You all just kind of take and and pass these uh, up and down the rows. Uh, Some of them are the same, but there are some different ones. These, this artwork from the 16th and 17th century was inspired from the book of Ecclesiastes that we're going to look at tonight. So pass some of these around, look at it, and you're all going, what in the world? Um, As you see this, this form of art was taken from the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 2. So if you're there, uh, let's look at it. It says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Uh, If you have another translation, you may have the NIV. The NIV uses the word meaningless. It says meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. And you're like, wow, what a great verse of scripture, you know, vanity. Uh, it's not vanity as in you like to look into a mirror and go, oh, look how beautiful and pretty and wonderful I am. It's vanity as in all is in vain. Why try? Why give any effort? It, it's vanity. Well, these art pictures that you see here come from, I mentioned the 16th and 17th uh, centuries, and it's a form of art called Vanitas art, V-A-N-I-T-A-S, Vanitas art. That sounds a whole lot like the word vanity, right? Well, it was inspired from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2, where the preacher here says, vanity, meaningless, all of life is meaningless. And as you go through the book of Ecclesiastes, it's a very kind of negative tone, a very somber tone. I mean, it's looking at life and it basically says... On your own, looking at stuff from a human perspective, and no matter what you try, all of life is in vain. All of life is meaningless. And so these artists in this era, they took and they began to paint these pictures. And there are two common themes that you see in the pictures. Anybody want to guess as to one of the themes that you see in these pictures? The skull. You see the skull in there. That's a reminder of death. I mean, obviously, when you see a skull, you think of death. And so their point in this thing was, no matter what you do and experience in life, guess what the end result's going to be? Death is coming your way. To all people, we're going to experience death. And so they took this art uh, section here, and I gave you just four pictures, but you Google this and go to images, and you'll have more Vanitas art than you, you know, have time to look at probably. But they would draw pictures of all kinds of things we pursue in life. There's jewelry. There's one with a king's crown. There's music. There's fine arts. 
you name it, fruits, vegetables, food, books, learning. They painted all kinds of stuff in these beautiful, beautiful paintings from that era, and then they stick a skull right in the middle of it to remind us and say, all of this stuff means nothing when all is said and done because death comes our way. There's a second theme in the pictures, and it's actually kind of depicted in two ways because the Vanitas art started in one season, and then as much artwork does, it kind of carries on for future generations and, and for centuries afterward. There's a second theme from the pictures. Anybody kind of want to guess what that one is? It's a little maybe harder to pick up. Flowers? Wasn't flowers. Not the smoking device. Bubbles. Bubbles. Oh, there are some bubbles in one. Okay. There were two bubbles in two of them. Yep. If, if, and you'll not the crown. Not the cherub. See, some of y'all got you haven't seen the same pictures. If you go back and look at them as they're coming around, there's a remembrance of time. There's an hourglass. Or there's a watch in the pictures. If you see them now, you have to look a little bit closer because you'll see the hourglass. That one's pretty easy to pick up. The other, you'll find like a stopwatch. You'll notice the top of it's open. There's a clock face. Again, the reminder of this is all these things we pursue in life, all that we go after, guess what? The clock is ticking. And guess what? When the clock winds down, what do we experience? Death is there. So th there's the skull. There's that picture. So this Vanitas art took and put those two things in to remind people when they looked at a picture that, you know what? No matter what you pursue after life, time's ticking away and death is going to be the end result. Like, wow, what a great uplifting, you know, thought for what, what a morbid idea it is. And, and it is. And that's why I said this book of Ecclesiastes, I mean, it is a very, very heavy book. And, and we'll walk through and look at some stuff tonight. And you see that. But again, wisdom literature, teaching us wisdom. What is wisdom? What did, the, what did Solomon say? The what is the beginning of wisdom? What's the beginning of wisdom? Proverbs 1 7. The, the fear of the Lord. God, that is the point of wisdom. So you think about wisdom literature that from Ecclesiastes that's saying when all of life is over, when time ha has run out of the hourglass for you, and when this life is over, is there anything more? Is there something more? Wisdom says, yes, there is, and it's only found in God. And that's what he kind of arrives at. But boy, he, he really walks through in this book uh, teaching us about that. So let's, let's kind of begin the top here. Ecclesiastes comes from the Greek word for a person who calls an assembly uh, and is identified in verse 1 as the preacher. So it's an ecclesiastical person, a person of the cloth, a person uh, of call and of ministry and of teaching and of serving God. They call and they gather an assembly and they teach from a spiritual perspective lessons and truths that people need to hear and understand in their relationship with God. So that's the, the book comes from Ecclesiastes, this person, this preacher who calls the assembly. The author of Ecclesiastes, uh, common tradition is most often referenced as Solomon. I uh, gave you a couple of references there that kind of paints a picture. The, then one who indicates being a son of King David, you know, which is Solomon. The one who speaks of having written many songs and, and many uh, 
words of wisdom, many proverbs. Again, seems to identify Solomon. There's been a small camp of people that say, well, the Hebrew's different from other parts of Hebrew, uh, so it doesn't look like it was him, or it talks about some subjects, like they, they reference that it speaks of a ruler as if it's a common person within a kingdom, not from a king's perspective. Like, well, Solomon wouldn't write that from a commoner's perspective because he was the king. But that could have been, you know, something that came later with a text adding in, uh, as editors would put in other stuff that Solomon inspired, some explanations. But basically, tradition holds that it was Solomon, and much of the internal evidence points that way. So the other school of thought, I just put in there, because you can make an argument there, but again, it's kind of an argument from silence uh, and can be explained more than anything else. If it was Solomon who wrote the book, the perspective of the book is basically someone later in life who's lived a life, who's had many, many experiences, who's gone through and who has seen and observed a lot of stuff, who's learned a lot of lessons, and they're kind of pontificating. They're looking back over their life and is speaking of what they learned. So it would obviously be near the end of their life. Since Solomon died in 931 B.C., it would have been somewhere before that time, obviously, uh, but, you know, right around the 950s uh, is a possibility. The purpose part of this, uh, and I just gave you this definition uh, and some scripture references that you can look at later, and and it's a good definition. It's packed with some pretty succinct words, so I just put it in here. I'm going to read through it. It provides instruction on how to live meaningfully, purposefully, and joyfully within the theocratic arrangement Now, that's important to understand. Within the theocratic arrangement, what is a theocracy? God ruled. Think about a democracy as people vote, ruling that. A theocracy is when God rules. He's governing. So, in a theocratic arrangement, God's in control. How do you live meaningfully, purposefully, joyfully? So, within that context, and then the answer is primarily by placing God at the center of one's life, work, and activities, and by contentedly accepting one's divinely appointed lot in life and by reverently trusting in and obeying the Creator King. All of this book comes back to a God point and a God focus and basically sums up what Job went through. You remember Job's life and all that he went through in the trials and God appeared to Job at the end of his book and you remember this whole dialogue we talked about where God questions Job and he says, Job, did you send the winds? Do you store up the snows? Do you know where hail is? Did you tell the ocean where to stop? God asks all these questions. Job says, no, I didn't. God says, I'm God and you're not. I have plans. I will work those plans. Sometimes they work out positively for you. Sometimes they work out negatively for you. Job has some ups and downs. There's positives. There's negatives. He lost a lot, but then he gained and had the blessings at the end. Ecclesiastes arrives at the same conclusion in essence. God is God and we're not. But him presenting his case of you just trust God and and understand that he's working his plan is all done from a negative tone. You don't have the, the positive uplifting highs of blessings and wonderful things that come your way. It is a very negative, down in the mouth, a Eeyore perspective of life that you go through. But it still says in the end that when all is said and done, you need to trust God. 
because he's the creator, he's the sustainer, he's working out his plans. Even when you don't understand, even when you don't like them, even when it is in vain and meaningless, you still ultimately trust God. Because what's the other alternative? I mean, basically, well, what else are you going to do? Because you know what's going to happen in life? You're going to work and you're going to die. Vanitas Art reminds us that death comes for all people, righteous and unrighteous. When that time comes, where's your faith? If you're going to have wisdom, you follow after God, even if it doesn't work out in your favor and in your benefit. Heavy, heavy book. I mean, I can't underscore to you the heaviness of this book. So if you take off and you're reading through the Bible, you're like, I'm going to start in Ecclesiastes. Just prepare yourself that it's that very, very deep, heavy perspective of life that challenges us uh, to seek after God. Uh, It kind of reminds us that life is destined to remain unsatisfying apart from recognizing God's sovereign oversight and his intervention in everything that happens in life's up and downs, ups and downs. It basically forces the reader to say what in life is positive. You know, there's so much negativity. What's good about life? And when you find anything the good that's find anything good in life, guess where it comes from? It comes from God. And in the bad in life, can we find good? Only through God. You know, and understanding Him and submitting to Him. That's, you know, that, that's the only place it can be found. So he basically says, you've got to come to God to make sense of anything that you will experience in life. And it's... It's helpful in the sense that these varying perspectives and this realistic, gut-wrenching look at life reminds us, it gives us a realistic perspective of the life that we encounter, that things don't always turn out our way, and it's not always positive, and the righteous do suffer, and you do work to acquire things and to achieve certain things, and guess what? You die, and all that you acquire to achieve is left to someone else, and they're unrighteous, and they don't care for it, and they don't appreciate what they received, and it's not fair that that happens. I mean, he, he walks through these examples of stuff uh, throughout this book. Uh, we'll come back and hit the key verses later. The themes in theology... Again, it doesn't flow smoothly. You know, we've had books where it's like, oh, it's the story of this. This isn't the story of anything. It's just a conglomeration of how all the bad stuff works out and why it's not pleasant to work out in this way. But the key theme through this book is the idea, the word meaningless or vanity. You will see that over and over again as you go through this. One author put it this way. He summed up the, the, the teachings of the book. He said, everything in life is vain empty, nothing, or absurd. And you think about those four words to describe everything in life that you find from the viewpoint uh, in Ecclesiastes. Nothing, everything in life is vain, empty, nothing, or absurd. And so setting up the context, these are the lessons. I'm just going to run through these here, and I really want to get you to the outline part because this outline, is it, it really just helps drive, drive home what he's talking about. If you summed up what the author, what Solomon writes about human wisdom, he said, I, I've, I've sought human wisdom and tried to figure this out in my brain and make sense of it and, you know, give it logical reasoning and understand the whys and the hows and all this. And here's what my human brain arrived at in human wisdom. And he tells us here that he's tried scientific discovery, tried wisdom and philosophy, tried mirth, which is laughter, being jovial, you know, kind of, you know, yucking your way through life. He's tried that, looked into architecture, property, luxury, uh, varying worldviews like materialism, get as much as you can, moral 
codes, just trying to live by right and wrong. He's tried all of these things, and he bubbles down seven kind of key things that you'll see. And you could argue more, but these are good summations. Number one, that humans can't achieve anything of ultimate or enduring significance by all their striving. Wow, isn't that awesome? All that we work for, all that we do, in our own efforts and stuff, nothing of enduring or lasting significance or value uh, do, do we achieve. Number two, he arrives at wisdom is better than folly. So that's not a bad thing. You, you, know, you want to be wise rather than, than be a fool. But he reminds us, as Proverbs did, that wisdom is only found in God. You know, If anything, uh, one commentator made the note that Ecclesiastes might be a, an effort in this direction. People will look at the book of Proverbs and go, wow, if I do the right things and if I follow these things then this is the path to life and to righteousness and to being blessed. And, and so I'm going to follow this path and it'll be easy. And look at all these things that will come my way. The book of Ecclesiastes follows it up and says, yes, that's the right thing to pursue. But you know what? It's not going to be an easy path. It's still going to be difficult to follow the path of wisdom and seek after God. Number four, human wisdom cannot explain life's anomalies. What's an anomaly? Variances. Oddity, variances. Come on. Yeah, yeah. You're going back to ninth grade chemistry. Going, oh, I don't, oh, what is it? An anomaly? I mean, the evidence points to it should be this, but the result isn't what was expected. Right. So nine times out of ten, it would be this. An anomaly is that ten out of ten time when it just didn't work out what you just doesn't fit the pattern, the mold, and, and you scratch your head and go, what? I, I don't get it. You all work with computers, right? You ever scratched your head and said, what in the world? Yeah. You know, it, it, it's just confusing. I, I hit the buttons. I did this stuff. IT, come here. I need you. You know, I'm, I'm stuck on this. The, these anomalies, and, and he goes through so many things in life, and, and he really focuses in on this. What do you do with disappointment? When you've put in, you've done this, you've sought this, and then it doesn't work out right. And it's not fair. I mean, I mean, this is, a, what about those situations when it's just not fair? What do you do? How do you respond? And he says, life is full of those, it's just not fair moments. And he chronicles example after example through this. Uh, number four, he, he references and reminds us of the sinfulness of mankind, uh, that men were made upright by God, but sin came into, and men are always scheming to get ahead, and oftentimes by taking advantage of other people. And someone does. Someone gets ahead by taking advantage of another person. And it's not right, and it's not fair, and it's not good. But you know what? It happens. And we see it all around us. And he, you know, again, references these things. Number five, that humans must learn to live with uncertainty. We just don't know. We do not know what tomorrow holds. I'm sure all of us can cite times we've gotten the phone call that changed everything for us. Health of an individual, uh, you know, disaster struck in a family, you know, a, a loss of some kind. Uh, just you know, we've experienced those those tragic, tragic moments. We just never know. Life is full of uncertainty. Number six, God keeps humans in their place. 
You know, so God is the one who's, who's uh, overseeing and ordaining these things. And then finally, number seven, God has ordered all things and humans can't change, understand, or anticipate God's actions and plans. And even though we may not be able to see it and it can kind of look like it's chaotic and out of order, there is an order, there is a time, there is a pattern, there is a season, and God is working these things. And so let's flip to chapter three. This is likely the most common passage uh, that you will know, not because it's the passage, but probably because of the songs <laughs> written from it. But uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break up and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. So see all those contrasts in there. And you know what? We live in that balance of all those things and in the middle and in the extremes that we go through. Part of the question that bubbles up is, well, how do you know when it's time for which one? How do you know when it's time to cry and when it's time to laugh? How do you know if you should be uh, mourning or dancing? Or foot fellowship in Baptist churches, we, the, the whole dancing word. So, <laughs> interpretive, move, interpretive movements, we call them, right? So that's how that shakes out. I mean, how do you know? That's a question. You can feel free to... Seek God's wisdom, you pray and you trust? What's that? Led by the Holy Spirit? What happens when you follow it and it becomes an anomaly? It doesn't work out like you thought it was. I was so convinced. I thought this was it. This is the way to go and it didn't turn out that way. What do you do then? You trust some more, okay? I've got a lot of options. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you have a lot of options. What'd you say, Ms. Jan? Stop, turn around. Yep. Yeah, and see, that that's what he works through, Bob. Maybe he's given us the answer for everything. I think that's part of what's here is that mystery that we don't know. That there are, you know, that mystery element that we don't understand. Remember going back to Job. Job never got answers and explanations, but still we seek after God because if there is going to be an answer, it's going to be found in Him. And, and see, this is the, I'm asking this question because this is what the, the author of Ecclesiastes does. You're like, oh, well, well, we pray, we follow God. Okay, what happens when you follow God and it still didn't work out? L- look at chapter uh, 2, just uh, column over there, verse 18. 
I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. I mean, he's kicking the dog right there. Man, I'm going to work and do all this sort of stuff, and some guy's going to come along, and, you know, who knows if he's going to squander it or, you know, be wise or be a fool, but you know what? I still got to leave it to him. You know, I worked and did it all. You know, it's all vanity. It's all in vain. Somebody's going to have this stuff. So you, you see these themes through that. However, the other side of this is we learn some things about godly wisdom. Again, the idea the focal point comes to, and it, the book does end when you get to finally 12, ch- 12 chapters long, for 1 through 10, pretty much life is meaningless, it's in vain, you can't make any sense of it. And then finally in chapter 12 he says, but still trust God anyway and you'll be, you know, that's all you can do. Like, well, okay, we end on that note there. But some godly wisdom learnings, accept your state as it is shaped by God's appointments and enjoy the life that you've been given as best as you can. You know, because there is this, this danger, this temptation. And, and the heaviness of Ecclesiastes, you're like, man, I'm just going to sit at home, my window's closed, and not do anything. You know, why try if it's all in vain? You can kind of get to that. But he says, no, just accept it. God's in control. He's doing what he's going to do. He's going to do what his plans are. So just enjoy life as best you can in that. And he continues on. Uh, number two, don't set unrealistic goals. You know, submitting your plans to God and, and following after his leadings and his promptings. Be prudent by following godly wisdom. And then number four, fear God and keep his commandments. Flip over to chapter 12. Verse 13, the end of the matter, let me sum this all up, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And that's a great summation in the midst of everything, fear God, uh, where where'd I go? fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or or evil. Just that reminder that you know what it may not work out in life and it may not, you know, follow our ideas and our thoughts of what it should be like, but there comes a time when the judgment will be executed and it's going to be permanent and it's going to be final and it will be just and it will be fair because a just and a fair and a righteous God will execute that judgment when that time comes. So ultimately, trust him. Uh, as you go through, he, he references several points I found to be quite interesting as I'm approaching a new birthday coming up here in a few weeks. Uh, he basically talks about enjoying your days of life and enjoying life. And he says to do that while you're young, before you get old and infirm and you can't taste, and you can't see, and you can't feel the good things of life. I think it's very interesting. He's like, hey, do it while you're young, because when you get old, everything changes, and you can't enjoy it as much. So, look about this. Here's an, an aged, wisdom, wise individual speaking where it says, hey, do it while you're young, because things change when you get older. Like, I'm coming up to the age of 40 now. I'm like, man, things have really changed in, in this last decade of my life. It's amazing uh, in doing that. So, what's... I ain't seen nothing yet. And see, that's what people keep telling me, you know. So the the author of Ecclesiastes was right, you know. It gets different. The 
experience of it, you know, gets different as you go through life. So he says, hey, enjoy it while you're young. All right. So, so, so live it up and experience these things. Uh, key words as you go through the book of Ecclesiastes, this word vanity or meaningless, you'll see that a ton through the book. He also spends a lot of time talking about using the word work, labor, and toil. Because that, from a human perspective, that's what we do, right? We work at stuff. We labor. We toil at things. We try to work it out. Our power and our strength. And he keeps saying, hey, knock yourself out. But guess what? When all said and done, you're only going to accomplish what God wanted you to accomplish. And if something falls through and fails, God was ordaining that as well. So, you know, all that you put into it, ultimately it's in God's hands and in his perspectives. And your accomplishments are only your accomplishments because God allowed you to accomplish that. One of our seminary professors, I'll never forget this in college, he said, boys, he said, you're going to think you have preached the greatest sermon ever and you're going to think you've had the greatest, most wise insights that anybody has ever heard. He said, but just remember that you have never had an original thought in your life, that if you have anything wise to say, it came from God. And we're all like, great, thanks. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Okay, yeah, that wasn't mine. That, that was God. Uh, but it is, you know, just, and you boil it down to how are we here tonight? How do we have the job that we have? And how do we have the, the energy to get up and to go and to work? It's because God sustains us as God sustains all of life. We don't think about our heart beating and our lungs functioning and our blood flowing through our veins. But God is actively sustaining all of those things, giving us life. How did we wind up in the job that we're in and have what we have? God provided and opened doors and led us in that way. Even if our path was through sin and disobedience and waywardness, God was still going before us in that, preparing the way to provide those things to be where we are now. So, I mean, God oversees all things, and the writer of Ecclesiastes reminds us of that. He talks about good and better a lot in this book. Uh, he talks about, uh, uses the word gift, gift and give, uses the phrase under the sun quite a bit. Basically, he wants to remind us and teach us and say, Everything under the sun. What does that mean? That means all of life. I mean, just everything that you can experience from creation, uh, you know, to what man has made. Everything under the sun, God ordains, oversees, uh, and watches after. And then he uses the phrase in here, chasing after the wind. Great phrase, chasing after the wind. How's that going to work out for you? Yeah, probably not. All right, you know that's like finding the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. You know, remember the disappointment of oh, you really can't do that. It's oh, okay, it's never going to happen. All right, chasing after the wind. Okay, let me run through. Uh, I want you to see this outline. The, um, the, the site that I got this from really, really did a good job walking this through. The theme of the book: the meaningless of the meaninglessness of human efforts on earth apart from God. We read that verse earlier, chapter uh, one, verse two, about vanity. All is vanity. Vanity. Everything is vanity. Uh, then he talks about the profitlessness of human toil to accumulate things in order to achieve happiness. Those first few verses. And then he goes into this discourse. In spite of life's apparent enigmas, these are mysteries, things that go unexplained, these anomalies. In spite of 
those things and meaninglessness, it is to be enjoyed as a gift from God. And you see, chapter 1, verse 12 to chapter 11, verse 6 is his discourse, him speaking to this truth right here. Life doesn't make sense. It's mysterious. It doesn't work out. But you know what? It's a gift from God. And enjoy it as best you can as you go through that. Letter A, since human wisdom and endeavors are meaningless, people should enjoy their life and their work and its fruits as gifts from God. Talks about human endeavors being meaningless, pursuing human wisdom is meaningless, seeking pleasure is meaningless. Uh, Number four there, toiling to accumulate things is meaningless. And why is it meaningless to accumulate things? This is the whole materialism bent. You know, we want to acquire stuff, get more stuff, get more stuff. Look at what he says. Because people must leave the fruits of their labors to others. And you realize that's going to happen, right? Like, well, it'll be my kids. Well, good, but you're just remember, it's going to somebody else anyway, all right? Your kids, even if it's that point, but it's going to someone else. Uh, letter uh, two there. Because all human efforts remain under the government of God's sovereign appointments, which people cannot fully know and which all their toil cannot change. So again, what we accomplish, what we acquire, God gave it to us, provided for in the first place. Letter three, or letter III. Because there are... Things better for people than the envy, greed, and ambition that motivate such toil. I mean, think about the wisdom of that. You know, we we have people. The greed drives them to take advantage of others, to hoard their wealth, the envy that's there. Just think about what motivates to get more and more and more and how that continues to fuel us toward that. And he says, hey, let those things go and find better things to replace it. Maybe love, giving, kindness, mercy, grace. You're replacing those things instead of what motivates us uh, to to pursue this, the acquiring of stuff. Uh, letter four there. Because the fruits of human labor can be lost, resulting in frustration. You ever seen that happen? The frustration that settles in? You ever seen someone with a relatively new car that's in a car wreck that wasn't their fault? Seen that a couple times with people. They're usually not very nice for a few days after that happens. All this that they work for and they have, and then, bam, I can't believe what happened. And, and it's gone. Is that frustrating? Oh, it's frustrating. Very, very frustrating. Letter B, since people cannot fully know what is best to do or what the future holds for them, they should enjoy now the life and the work God has given them. Uh, letter Roman numeral number five, the Bold Dare Discourse, part two. Since old age and death will soon come, people should enjoy life in their youth, remembering that God will judge. Um, you see number three there, he talks about people should remember their creator and his gifts in their youth before the deteriorations of old age and the dissolution of the body come. <laughs> It's great reading through. Hey, enjoy it while you can. He repeats the theme, chapter 12, verse 8, and then reminds us those last few verses, reverently trust in and obey God. So just that that final summation of the book of Ecclesiastes. Any of you ever read through, done any kind of study in this book? Ronnie? Read through it, not to spend much time on study? It was depressing, like you said. (laughs) Well, I, I, for me, 
There, if a single word, as you read through the book, just kind of let echo in your mind, a theme not from that, is the drive toward contentment. As you read this book, think about it from this perspective. This is wise King Solomon, wealthy, wise, influential, everything you could acquire and hope to acquire in life. This wise man at the end of his life looks back over all of it and what does he say? All meaningless. Vanity. Everything you can imagine, it's all meaningless. So you either live in despair and depression to go great or you say, you know what? I'm just going to be content with what I have, with where I am, be thankful for what I have, this little piece, this little corner, what God has done. And, you know, maybe it's not great compared to this or compared to that, but to be content and to kind of fast forward that to the book of Philippians, when the apostle Paul speaks about contentment, don't ever forget that when Paul writes these words, he said, I have learned the secret of contentment. He says he learned it. Contentment doesn't just flow in our veins. It's a learned thing in life. How do we learn it? We depend on God. We grow close to Him. We trust Him in the highs, in the lows, in the goods, in the bad. So as you read through the book, that, that's kind of the thought that comes back to me. You know, I spoke a little bit, kind of kicking things off Sunday with this, that you know, we, in our society today, you know, celebrities and mega superstars have everything you can imagine, and they're still, their lives are a wreck. You know, we watch their reality shows or their scripted reality shows, whatever they are now, and they're all in rehab, and their marriages are falling apart, and they get arrested for shoplifting. And all. you're like, really? All, all this stuff, and it's not enough. I mean, it's not enough. You know what that tells us? The same thing Solomon told us. You can have everything, and it's not going to be enough. So be content. Be content. Seek after God. He will give you that contentment that will you have us from Him. And He's worthy of being praised for what's in your life and what's taking place. Good, bad, and everything in between. All right? The book of Ecclesiastes. Next week, we turn the corner from Ecclesiastes to Song of Solomon. Oh la la! Alright, so uh, yeah, it goes from the lows to the highs. Alright, so we'll, we'll look at that and uh, set that up and, and got to do some interpretational stuff in the, in the Song of Solomon. But uh, if you get blushy, then you know, just put a little extra makeup on next week. Alright, bring your fan. It'll be, we'll turn the heat up next week so we'll all be a little flush as we go through it. Alright, all right, let's, let's close in a word of prayer this evening. Lord, thank you for this book. Uh, Lord, as I said, it's a heavy book. Uh, Lord, it can be a a book that weighs uh, heavy on our hearts and our spirits, and we look at it, and and Lord, we we don't know what to do with it. But I pray, Father, that we would be reminded as often as we might come across this book or hear it, I pray, God, that you would just bind the word contentment to our hearts and our spirits. Lord, this book reminds us that you are in control of all things. Lord, the exact moment that we are in time, everything that's taken place in our lives and our situations, Father, whatever baggage, whatever anxieties, whatever fears, whatever doubts, whatever worries we walked into uh, this building with tonight, Father, you know those things. And Lord, you work situations and brought things and events and circumstances into our life that have brought us to this exact moment and point in time, good, bad, and everywhere in between. So, Father, in this, our only hope 
is to trust in you, is to look to you, to seek to obey you, trusting, Lord, that your word says that when we obey you, we find you, we seek you with all of our heart, that there we find you, and that, Lord, there are blessings in that, and sometimes those blessings are positive, and they're good, and they're wonderful, and it's relief from things, but, Lord, sometimes the blessing is simply knowing you and being reminded that you are with us in the midst of the difficulties and the dark times and the hard situations we're going through. But, Lord, we're reminded of this, that in everything, the only place we can find what we need is in you. And so I pray that regardless of where we may be in this evening, that we would seek after you and draw close to you and that you would do the work in our lives that only you are able to do. And, Lord, help us in the midst of whatever situation or circumstances we may find ourselves in. Help us praise you and give you the glory and the honor that you deserve because you are God and you are in control of all things. We pray this prayer in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.